We pray, Father, that your spirit would give us understanding as we look into the book of Revelation this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless the gifts and the offerings given uh, to this place, Lord. May we use them for your glory. We thank you, Lord, for the ability that you've given us to not only minister to people here, live in our church, but also, Lord, via Facebook, via streaming, through radio. And, Lord, we're wanting to take larger steps in these areas. So we pray, Lord, for your provision. Lord, we're asking for us, Lord, it's a mountain-type prayer. We're asking big things, but you have taught us, Lord, that all we need is faith as small as a mustard seed in order to move mountains. And so, Lord, we would pray that you would move mountains for us this day. We ask in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Today we're looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 29. We're looking at two churches, seven churches of the book of Revelation. We're going to uh, deal with two churches a week, and you got it. The math doesn't work out correctly to do that. On the final week, we'll look at the last church, the church of Laodicea, and then we'll do a review of the seven churches, but also look at the seven churches and how they played out throughout history, historically, since the Lord Jesus gave this letter to John the Apostle there on the Isle of Patmos. So last week we looked at the church of Ephesus who had left their first love. They are called the Loveless Church. And we also looked at the church of Smyrna. And although they were persecuted severely and they were about to face a persecution of what the Lord said, 10 days of persecution. We'll see this in our final week that those 10 days could have actually spoken about 10 periods that stretched out for a number of years, over 100 years. They are known as the suffering church, but where the world looked at the church of Smyrna and saw them as poor and suffering, Jesus said, you are rich. They were rich in faith and rich in the spirit. Today we're going to look at the church of Pergamos, who neither loved nor suffered, but allowed the doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaitans to corrupt their fellowship. So they are known as the corrupt church, or the compromising church, I should say. And we also learn of the church of Thyatira, who seem to have redeeming qualities like good works, love, service, faith, and patience. However, they had allowed things to enter into their life that were not praiseworthy, and so they are known as the corrupt church. And so today we're going to look at the compromised and the corrupt. In Revelation 2, verses 12 through 29, the church of Pergamos, the compromised, and the church of Thyatira, the corrupt I want to remind you that each letter has a format in it. And we looked at this last week. I'll probably just remind you every week, get it locked in our heads, that in each letter that the Lord dictated to John, he began by a description of himself that is found from Revelation chapter 1, a bit of the description of the Lord Jesus Christ, that which either Jesus proclaimed about himself or John testified seeing and uh, Parts of those descriptions are revealed to each of the seven churches 
And I believe that the Lord detailed parts of those descriptions specifically to the churches, that it was important for them to heed what the Lord said of himself before the Lord addressed the church. The second part of the letter uh, simply begins with, I know. In each of the seven churches, he may not have started with the words, I know, but you can find the words, I know, the Lord letting each of the seven churches know what was going on in each of their fellowships. And I believe sometimes we act as if the Lord doesn't know. We believe here and we know here that he does, but we act as if he doesn't. And the Lord reminds the churches, I know, I know what's going on. And finally, he gives a promise to those who overcome. And this is an amazing thing. Five of the seven churches were not found faithful by the Lord, but in each of the seven churches, Jesus gave a promise to the overcomers. And in fact, Jesus was in the midst of the seven churches. So even to this day, there could be churches that we from the outside look at them and think, man, God is not there any longer. And Jesus to this day might say, no, I'm here in their midst. And I have a promise to the overcomers, those who overcome. Not everyone will overcome. So let's begin our first church, the compromising church, the church of Pergamus. I'll read the context, verses 12 through 17. And we'll get into the teaching of God's word. And to the angel of the church of Pergamus write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, things which I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So the church of Pergamos, known as the Compromising Church, the name Pergamus means heights or elevation. They are located about 20 miles inland, that of Smyrna. We find all the seven churches are in what today is modern-day Turkey, or we know it biblically as Asia Minor. And they were all in a similar region, not too far from one another. Pergamus was a city of Mysia, and it was an ancient Roman Providence of Asia, Asia Minor. It was about three miles from the river, about 15 miles from the sea. And um, the first to have his dynasty there was King Attalus I. He adorned their city with buildings, and history tells us it was one of the most wonderful cities of the East. It was praised with arts and literature. 
they actually had a library of some 200,000 volumes of books, or better known as parchments. Actually, the word parchment was derived from the city of Pergamos, where they first used parchment to copy materials. I guess they got tired of etching things into stone like Moses did on the mountain with the Ten Commandments. They had to be a better way to carry your Bible than hunk of stone. It's a joke. Remember that. Of the structures that adorned the city, there were not only this great library, but also several altars to different gods that they worshipped. One was the altar of Zeus, which was 40 feet in height. And they also had other temples, and they worshipped different gods in that city. And they had one that they worshipped that was a god of healing, and the people would come and lay in the courts of that temple And as they slept there overnight, the false god would give information to the priest of that temple to result in the healing of the people. And so it became known as a place where people could be healed, also known for medicine. And many people were deceived in that place. They came that they might be healed of illness and sickness. And Jesus came to them in verse 12. He said, to the angel of the church of Pergamos write. Remember angel, angelos in the Greek. It means messenger or angel. We could translate that. So either the Lord is referring to the angel that is set to watch over the church there in Pergamos, or he is addressing the pastor of that church or both. He described himself as he who has the sharp two-edged sword I am he who has the sharp two-edged sword. In chapter 1, verse 16, John describing the Lord, he said, He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went the sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun in his strength. The sword of justice and judgment by which Jesus rules. He had that two-edged sword. In fact, he said he would come upon them if they did not repent with this sword. Now, we had learned about this sword in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. The author of Hebrews was thought to have been written before the fall of Jerusalem, which was in 70 A.D. Uh, The book of Revelation believed to be written after the fall of Jerusalem. And so we find that the Lord had already addressed this two-edged sword in the book of Hebrews In Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, it says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, and all things are naked and open to him to whom we must give account. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. They understand that there is a connection to this two-edged sword and the word of God. And now Jesus places a connection to the two-edged sword and himself. What does John in the gospel tell us? That in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word, Jesus Christ, wielding the two-edged sword of justice and judgment by which he rules 
over his church and over this world. Revelation 19.15 tells us, Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and of the wrath of the Almighty God. Let me ask you this question. If you had to face the Lord while he's wielding this two-edged sword, would you rather stand before the Lord as a believer or as an unbeliever? I hope you like, no, I want to be an unbeliever. Yeah, off with the head. There you go. No, I hope as a believer, because there's a thing about the sword of the word of God. You put a knife in my hands and say, John, man, somebody, we were out hunting and somebody shot me and I got this buckshot in my arm. Could you dig it out for me? It's like, I, I don't know. Sure. And I could dig around in your body. It would be quite gross and quite messy. And you might bear some worse scars than if you left the buckshot in. Eventually that will find its way out anyways. But you take the same knife and you put it in the hands of a surgeon and he will do his best to minimize the scarring but also minimize the damage as he goes in. The sword of the word of God, it can pierce, it can cut away, it can cleanse, it can heal. But when the sword's in the wrong hand by the wrong person, it will hack and it will leave people bleeding and bloody but not bringing any healing upon the person. So the sword of the word of God, to face that sword as a believer, the Lord can bring healing into our lives. And so the second part of the letter, he knows, verses 13 through 16, first verse 13, we find the redeeming qualities of the church itself. Jesus says, I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. In fact, he repeats this twice at the beginning and the end of the verse. He says, where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. This was a wicked city. He said, but you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days which Antipas, my faithful martyr, was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Pergamus dwelt in an area where, according to Jesus, Satan had swayed the society there. He caused them what we might say, coming from Romans chapter 1, verse 23, it's happening in our world today, where Satan causes them to change the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man. Therefore, Pergamos, Romans 1, 25, has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And to this day, we have people in our society, they have rejected God, but they're worshiping and serving the creature. Maybe they're the creature. They serve themselves. Maybe they serve others. Maybe they serve their governments or some false god. But having rejected God, this is what was going on in Pergamos. Pergamos was also known as a center for emperor worship. Nevertheless, the church had held fast to Jesus' name. They had not denied Jesus' faith. 
and even when they had killed Jesus's faithful martyr. Did you notice that? Jesus saying, my name, my faith, my martyr. It reminds us that Jesus, my name, my faith, my martyr, it reminds us that in Christ, all we have and all who we are, it belongs to Jesus. To him be the glory forever and ever, all men, as we are to conduct ourselves in this world. To the church of Smyrna, Jesus had said, be faithful until death and I will give you a crown of life. And may it be that we would be those who have such faith in these last days. They were faithful to a point to the church of Smyrna. We looked at them last week. Be faithful unto death. And here to the church of Pergamos, he said, you've had my faith, my name, my faithful martyr. They had to a point been faithful, but they had strayed. Those within the fellowship, there were those who had strayed from the faith. No longer did they uphold the name of Jesus or the faith that had been given to them by Jesus or those who stood for Jesus and they had strayed from the faith. Verses 14 through 16, Jesus said, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come quickly and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. And so the call to repentance, and these things, he said, I have against you. You have those within your fellowship that hold to the doctrines of Balaam, and those that hold to the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. Now we learn about Balaam in the Old Testament from Numbers chapter 22 through 24. As the children of Israel were making their way to the promised land, they came into the area of Moab. And the Lord God had actually commanded Israel not to mess with the Moabites. He said, I have given them this land as their inheritance. You shall not touch a hair of their head. You should need water. You need food. Uh, you need the path, the roadway is what you requested. You purchase it, you pay for it. But Balak, the king of the Moabites, along with the Midianites, came against Israel. He actually hired a renowned prophet, a false prophet, which is an amazing thing, that he was a false prophet who heard the voice of the true God. So King Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel. And Balaam said, man, I want your money, but I can only say what God tells me to say. And so he was hired. And on four different occasions, moving from place to place, figuring that if looking out over the nation of Israel, maybe on a high mountain, seeing the whole nation of Israel, he first went to give prophecy over Israel, and, and what he did was bless the children of Israel and actually curse their enemies. And King Balak said, I did not hire you to bless them. What are you doing to me? And then he moved them to a different location that he could only see a portion of the people. Maybe you could curse 
a quarter. Just knock off a quarter or one-third of the nation, and at least we'll have a fighting chance. And he, from that location, once again, he blessed the children of Israel. Blessings came forth. And in fact, by the fourth round of this, Balaam discovered that God loved to bless the children of Israel. And in fact, in that fourth round, he actually gave forth prophecy concerning Jesus Christ, concerning the star of Bethlehem. Pretty amazing that the Magi came to Bethlehem seeking the star. We followed the star, him who was born the king of the Jews. Well, that prophecy of the star came from a false prophet who spoke the truth of God's word. That really messes with your head. But in our churches today, we can have preachers who do not rightly believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of their life, but in the course of their message, they can present truth. That's why we need discernment in the day and age that we find ourselves in. The children of Israel needed discernment as well, and the church of Pergamos needed such discernment. And so historically, we can look at Balaam, learn about Balaam, but also we find that he's mentioned two other times in the New Testament. We find him in 2 Peter 2.15 where it says, And they forsaken the right way and had gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of the unrighteous. We learn about Balaam that he liked to get paid. And he would devise a way, though he spoke true prophecies over the nation of Israel, he would devise a way that God would come against his own people. We'll talk about that in a moment. Also, we find in Jude 11, where it says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have run greedily in the area of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And so that point, he's talking about the way of Cain, the error of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah. He speaks about three different things in Jude 11, but he mentions the error of Balaam. The error of Balaam is that ministering for profit. And though hired to curse Israel, Balaam, as I said, he spoke blessing over the nation of Israel. He prophesied blessing over them from four different locations. I read in one commentary that he spoke seven words of blessing over the children of Israel. Since God would not allow him to curse Israel, Balaam then counseled Balak to send their young women into the camp to entice the young men to worship false gods and to commit sexual immorality. As a result of that, God came against his own people and 24,000 people fell in the nation of Israel. 24,000 died. Balaam, though, loved the wages of the unrighteous. He ran greedily toward profit, causing him to err in his way. And we discover as we read through Scripture that ultimately when Joshua took the second generation into the promised land, he fought against the Moabites. Balaam died among those whom he had deceived and gained their wages from Balaam died among the princes of Midian. He's numbered or named with them. And so he he got his just 
desserts, as it would say. Now, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, that's a little harder because we've already heard from Jesus with the church of Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, he commended them for hating the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And there he said, which I also hate. And he repeats it again here. But now he condemns the church of Pergamos for being swayed by the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus said, I also hate. But nowhere else in scripture is it mentioned. And so all we have is commentators trying to figure out what in the world is being talked about here. So we find that Arrhenius, one of the church fathers, early church fathers, said the Nicolaitans actually came from Nicholas, who is part of the seven deacons that they are named there in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, that Nicholas named as part of the seven deacons that this was a sect that came from him. Irenaeus taught this. And then others had said, Pastor Chuck, the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement, uh, kind of fell into this camp where if you break apart the word, Nico in the Greek means to conquer, and Laos means laity or over the people, to conquer the people, and thus the forming of a priesthood over the people. And many fall into this camp of the meaning of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, that of forming a priesthood over the people which God uh, never desired. He said, you are a holy generation, a holy priesthood, a royal nation. But whatever this doctrine was, Jesus twice has told us now in two of the different churches that I hate this doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And thus, he commended the church of Ephesus for also hating this doctrine, but condemned the church of Pergamos, who held to this false doctrine. Sadly, the doctrines of Balaam and that of the Nicolaitans crept into the church, and it caused them to be estranged from Christ, but not forsaken by him. That's the amazing thing for me so far, going through now the third letter of the church and the fourth, as we'll get to that in a moment, that the Lord is condemning these who are not walking in the way. He was still in their midst. They still had the lampstands, as he introduced to the church of Ephesus, that the Lord stood among the seven golden lampstands, each of the lampstands representing one of the seven churches. The Lord was still there, and he still ministered to them and called them to overcome, to those who would overcome. Galatians 1, 6 and 7 says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who have troubled you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Yet Jesus promises the overcomers in verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give to him a white stone upon which is written a new name, on which no one knows except him who receives it. The overcomers will receive this hidden manna and the white stones with new names written upon it. The hidden manna. Now, in the Old Testament, we learn of the Lord sending manna 
to the children of Israel there in the wilderness for 40 years to provide for them, to nourish them for those 40 years, to give them water, to give them manna. Each family, they were commissioned by the Lord one time only. When you go out today, take a jar, put manna in it, preserve it, that it would be with your families forever, that you could have in your house, every family could have a jar of preserved hidden manna in the sense that once they were in the promised land and they had this inheritance that mom and dad, they picked this up in the wilderness. Here's the manna. Here's what it looks like. Mama, can I look at the manna today? Oh, yeah, only a few seconds. Let's take a look. I don't, I don't know if they had clear glass jars or they could quickly open it and close it again. But wouldn't that be cool to have, you know, passing on the jar of manna? But also in the Ark of the Covenant, there was only three things that God allowed to be placed in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant itself was a box. The mercy seat was the lid to this box. And within the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments, the two stones, and the jar of this manna, and also the staff of Aaron's rod, the rod that budded. And so we know historically that there was the manna, but also the Bible teaches us manna, bread, that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And he relates to the manna of old in the Old Testament to himself. In John 6, 48 through 51, Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. Now the white stone with the new names, again, this is kind of like the Nicolaitans, though familiar to uh, this church that Jesus was writing to, it's maybe not so familiar to us. The one thing that we do have, um, we still understand what it means to be blackballed in our society today. In a voting process, perhaps in secret meetings or such, that they would have white and black stones. To be blackballed would mean that you were put out. To receive a white stone means that you are part of that society. Also, there were those who played in the equivalent to the Olympian games and such that they played back in the day, that the winner of these games would receive a stone, a white stone with their names written on it, and the stone became their ticket. Historically, the stone became their ticket that they had access to the banquet that followed the games, that they could come to the games. Where's your tickets, please? Today we'd take out our iPhone. Here it is, scan it in. Then they had, where did I put my rock? Oh, yeah, it's right here. Here's my rock. And it had their name on it. A new name. Isaiah 62.2 says, The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name by which the mouth of the Lord will name. In the Bible, we often learn of God giving new names to those who served him as Abram became Abraham, 
Sarai became Sarah. Jacob became Israel. Simon became Peter. Saul became Paul. And the Lord says to those who overcome, you're going to get a white rock with a new name, which no one knows except the one who receives it. Did you get a white rock? Yeah, got mine. What name's written on it? Can't tell you. It's mine. Jesus gave it to me. Have you ever had those special pet names? Someone might give you. The Lord's got a name for each of us. Receiving the new name speaks about the new life that the overcomers will find through their faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, a favorite verse of many. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And may we long to eat of that hidden manna and long to receive the white stones with new names written upon them. And then we have the corrupt church, the church of Thyatira. Besides its being mentioned three times in the book of Revelation, Thyatira is only mentioned one other place in the Bible. And the city itself is not addressed in the Bible, but an individual who came from that city was Lydia, a woman who was a seller of purple from Thyatira there in Acts 16, verse 14. It tells us of that. Lydia was a worshiper who had gathered by the river on the Sabbath day where Paul proclaimed the gospel, and she was the first to believe, along with her family, of the converts of Philippi, but also the first to believe in all of Europe. Perhaps Lydia and her family, when they went back to their hometown, they were the ones who brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to there in Thyatira. Thyatira, about 40 miles southeast of Pergamos. Although never a magnificent or great city, it was known for its natural resources from which came a lot of uh, trade guilds. People could work as Lydia made this product of purple. It made it a very profitable city. Now Jesus, will read the context, had a bit more to say to this church in verses 18 through 29. He said, To the angel of the church of Thyatira, these things says the Son of God, whose eyes are like flame of fire, his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allowed that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality to eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. I will give each to each one of you according to your works. But to you, I say, to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, 
and those who have not known the depths of Satan, and as they call them, I will put on them no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and as a potter, potter's vessels shall be broken to pieces. And as I have received from my Father, I will give them the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Once again, his name. Here he says, the Son of God. Now we can't go back to chapter 1 to find this term. In fact, the Son of God, though named 45 times in the New Testament, it's only found once in the book of Revelation here in chapter 2, verse 18. We do learn in John 19, 7, where the religious rulers called Jesus, saying, we have a law, according to our law, he ought to die, because he called himself, named himself the Son of God. They admitted that Jesus called himself the Son of God. Paul himself wrote to us in Romans 1, 4, declared to be the Son of God, with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The ultimate proof of Jesus being the Son of God is the resurrection from the dead, that he is who he proclaimed himself to be, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, whose eyes are like flame of fire. There we can go back to chapter 1. We find Jesus being described by John as he who had eyes like the flame of fire speaking about his gaze by which he would judge the world. 1 Corinthians 1, 13 through 15 says, And each one's work will become clear, for in that day it will be declared, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work in which he has built, if it endures, he will receive reward. 1 Corinthians 3.15, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Talking to the believers there. But the eyes of fire reminding us of the judgment of the Lord himself. He has feet like fine brass. Again, the description that John gave us of Jesus as he saw him in his glorified body would feet like fine brass. Speaking about judgment as the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the altar of sacrifice was made out of brass. Brass is always connected to judgment. But Jesus' feet are like fine brass, perhaps speaking about the fiery trial that he went through there upon the cross as he was refined, as he died for our sins there upon the cross. Luke 12, verses 49 and 50 says, I came to send fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, Jesus speaking about the cross, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. These same feet will tread, according to Revelation 19.15, the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty. But Jesus said to them, I know. As to each of the seven churches, I know your works, 
and really redeeming qualities. I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, your patience. As for your works, the last are actually more than the first. They were a very busy church. They had a lot of redeeming quality. In fact, they were increasing in their works. 1 Thessalonians 1.3 says, Remember, without ceasing, your works of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and the Father. Paul remembering the church, remembering their work of faith, their labor of love, their patience of hope. Works are good when done in proper place, not works for reward, not works for salvation, but works because the Lord has already given us salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Even though they had these redeeming qualities, they had other things that entered into their church that are not worthy of praise. Verses 20 through 23, beginning in verse 20, he says, I have a few things against you that you have allowed that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality, to eat things sacrificed to idols. Jezebel from the Old Testament was the wife, the queen of King Ahab. We learn about her in 1 Kings 16 through 21. We also read about her in 2 Kings chapter 9, her death there. 1 Kings 21, 25 says, There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. She was a wicked woman who stirred up the king of Israel to do very wicked things in the sight of the Lord. The Bible tells us that she had 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah that ate from her table every day. She had 850 false prophets that she fed every day. But when... Elijah did battle with them there on Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal. When the prophets of Baal tried to pray down fire from heaven, they learned that they could not even pray up a puff of smoke. But Elijah, when he prayed, fire came down and not only consumed the sacrifice, but the water that he had poured upon it and the very altar itself. And although Jezebel had massacred a great number of God's prophet and threatened to even take the life of Elijah himself, Elijah learned that the Lord God telling Elijah that I have 7,000 more in Israel that have not bowed a knee to Jezebel. Jezebel in the church speaks about this spiritual fornication replacing the true worship of Jesus Christ, perhaps replacing them with traditions, with sexual immorality, finding its way within the church with idolatry, committing spiritual adultery to the Lord. Notice that the Lord said she calls herself a prophetess. She calls herself a priest, a preacher, a prophet, but she is not. Yet Jesus' rebuke, revealed that 
She did not represent God. In fact, she taught the church to do things that went against the word of God. And although they should have known better, they allowed themselves to be seduced by her. To this day, we have churches in the United States and the greater part of the world itself that they are allowing themselves to be seduced, to do things that they know that they should not do, to side with this woke nation that we find ourselves. Remember, when they say woke today, it ties back to the elections of 2016 when President Trump won. It woke up the radical left thinking that, hey, we're gonna we're on this path to the Green New Deal, the one world government, and suddenly the brakes were put on. So to say woke, it's not talking about the church. It's talking about the radical left who wants nothing to do with God in their wokeness. They woke up realizing that the rest of the world was not yet following them yet. Now, the Bible does say that the church needs to wake up from their slumber. So there needs to be a true wokeness in the church. But when I say woke in regards to the church, we need to separate it from what the world means. And that's something you find out in the critical race theory. We hear a lot of it today. They like to redefine terms. So when the church talks about waking up, we mean waking up spiritually. When they talk about waking up, they mean waking up in a whole different way. We have those in the church that are following after things that they should know better. Following after traditions over true faith in God. Following after things that lead to sexual immorality, idolatry, or spiritual adultery. 2 Corinthians 11:13 through 15 says, For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into angels or apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transformed himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is of no great thing of his ministers to also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Jesus said his grace, verses 21 and 22, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. She did not repent. Indeed, what a vivid picture. I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into tribulation, into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. Having that impenitent heart, a heart that refuses to repent, what Paul wrote about concerning the Jews who did not believe in Jesus Christ in Romans 2, verses 4 through 6, he says to the Jews there, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, his long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with the hardness, your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to their deeds. Jesus said in verse 23, I will kill her children with death that all the churches shall know 
that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one according to their works, that all the churches will know. The Lord will sometimes bring judgment against the church, some particular church, to wake up the other churches. Hey, it's time to get serious, that all the other churches might know. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Hebrews 4.13, we've already looked at this earlier with the two-edged sword, but the end of that passage says, There is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are naked and open before him, to whom we must give account. But Jesus said to those who did not need to repent, I will lay upon you no other burden. Now I say to you, verses 24 and 25, to the rest in Thyatira, who do not hold to this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, I say to you, I will not put on any other burden, but hold fast till I come. Like the 7,000 in Elijah's day, those who did not bow a knee, to the wickedness of Jezebel in Elijah's day. There were those within the churches that did not hold or partake of the doctrine of Jezebel. And Jesus said, I'll put on you no other burden, but hold fast till I come. Hold fast. That's what we are to do. Hebrews 10:23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Jesus said, till I come, the Lord Jesus is coming again. It's something that has been taught since Jesus first ascended into heaven. After his resurrection, as Peter and John and the other disciples went out on the day of Pentecost, they not only talked about the sacrifice of Jesus, but they talked about the second coming of Jesus as well. To this day, the church should be teaching about the second coming of Jesus, that he is coming again. Jesus has promised us in Revelation 1, 7, Behold, he is coming, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth shall mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And to those who overcome, Jesus said, Verses 26 and 27, to he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, I will give him power over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and they shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. As I also receive from my father to those who hold fast to those who keep Jesus's work until he comes, they will have power over the nations. They will rule and reign with Christ in the millennial reign. He's actually quoting from Psalm chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where it says, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the end of the earth for your possessions, and you shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel that will share in that. Jesus also said in verses 28 and 29, I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This morning star 
It's only used once more in the book of Revelation, this title, Morning Star. There it is applied to Jesus Christ in Revelation 22:16, where Jesus proclaims himself saying, I am the bright and morning star. And perhaps with this promise, Jesus is telling the overcomers, you shall reflect my glory. Shouldn't that be our desire to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ, the bright and morning star? We have learned so far, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Last week we learned of the loveless church, the church of Ephesus. And although Ephesus had left their first love, Jesus called them to remember and to repent. And he promised the overcomers that they would be granted free access to the tree of life. To the church of Smyrna, known as the suffering church, in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, though they had suffered greatly and though they would suffer 10 days of persecution that was coming according to the word of the Lord, Jesus promised the overcomers that they would not be hurt by the second death. Today we've learned of the church of Pergamos, the compromising church. Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. They dwelt where Satan's throne is. Reminds me of my friend, John Knapp, who pastors a church in Lake Villa, not Lake Villa, <laughs> Las Vegas. We actually get emails from people from Las Vegas thinking they, they do the same thing we do. Think about it. Calvary Chapel Lake Villa, Calvary Chapel Lake Villa, Las Vegas, I can't even say it. CCLV, CCLV. And so we get emails often. We've even received money from Las Vegas. Thank you. Wrong church. My friend. John Knapp, who pastors there in the Las Vegas area where Satan dwells. <laughs> Fits, right? Though there were those who stumbled over the doctrines of Balaam and Balak, or Barak. Those who overcame, they were given hidden manna, given stones with new names. And to the corrupt church of Thyatira, verses 18 through 29, though they were a church who increased in works, in faith. They were seduced by false prophet, this false prophet Jezebel. But to the overcomers, Jesus said, you will rule with me and you will also reflect my glory, the glory of the bright and morning star. Around here at Calvary Chapel Lake Villa, we have a church motto that's just right behind me. Let's stand and Go through our model today. I want you guys to get this in your head. Someday it may uh, it may just come into play. You might be out and about somewhere, and it's like, what are we supposed to do? Oh yeah, believe, receive, grow, and go. I can I can share faith with somebody. Let's do it together. So first of all, we are to believe, and we say together, Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11:6. We also need to receive, receive Jesus into our hearts. We say together, Romans 5:17. 
For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Romans 5.17 Not just believing and receiving, but also growing in our faith. And we say together, 2 Peter 3.18 But grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. 3.18 And we need to go. We need to share our faith with others. We say together, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. For those who are listening perhaps on the radio today or you're watching through Facebook, we want to encourage you, if you have a prayer need, please email us at cclv at comcast.net. If you have never prayed to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and you would like to do so today or you have questions regarding faith or simply have a prayer request, again, you can email us at cclv at comcast.net. I checked that email Every day, more than once a day, email us. We'd love to connect with you. Remember, this coming Wednesday, we're going to start in the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2. Father, thank you so much for being with us as we've come together to worship you today. Lord, help us to learn from these seven letters to the seven churches found here in the book of Revelation. Lord, help us to be overcomers. As we go through these churches, Lord, there will be things that you speak to us individually. And Lord, minister to our hearts. Let us be those who overcome. Let us be those who would be willing to stand in truth and to walk in truth, to be a testimony to the rest of the world of the faith that we have in you, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We do pray, Lord, that we would be able to eat of the hidden manna, that we would... Lord, receive new names and these white stones. Help us, Lord, to receive the bright and morning star to walk in fellowship with you. Lord, as we close in this song of worship, I pray that you would be with us, Lord, as we go from this week, out into this week, from this church. Watch over this fellowship and the saints that worship here. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.